You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Coleman Dennehy from University College Dublin, entitled Jails and Jailbreaking in Early Modern Ireland. So, Jails and Jailbreaking, it's just a little outing for a kind of a, a chapter or a sub-chapter of, of this, this famous book that's much talked about but is yet to appear and probably won't for a while yet. So whilst many aspects of the state, uh, as we would understand it today, were more likely underdeveloped if they existed at all, the jail was actually a reasonably prominent and regular feature of the medieval English state in Ireland. Places of strength designed to hold an individual before their trial or after their trial whilst they went to punishment... They're likely to have been a feature of most English towns, cities and counties in Ireland since the earliest decades of the development of English law in the early years of the 13th century, if not earlier. However, it is noteworthy that places of incarceration or detention were not a prominent feature in medieval Gaelic law in Ireland. The Brown legal system, going further back, uh, dealing with what today what we would consider today to be crime, was one of primarily a system of torts. Um, whereby those wronged or their families could claim an eric or a blood price as a compensation, a process common across many law codes in medieval Europe. That's not to say that holding an individual was not unheard of. Things like hostage-taking as enforcement for political treaties was a feature, but incarceration was not a feature of the pre-Norman Gaelic system in the way that we would understand it today. Uh, With the growth of the common law state in Ireland from the early 13th century onwards, we begin to see the emergence of the medieval jail. Obviously nothing like the modern prison where incarceration and the loss of liberty is the punishment, more that it was essentially a holding pen for the accused until itinerant justices on jail delivery visited to try the prisoners. Whilst the shiring of parts of Ireland under English control led to the growth of the county infrastructure, including the medieval jail, there were also many places of confinement independent of that system, such as jails and liberties or corporate towns and cities. And you'll see an example of that in four Um, where I visit quite regularly in County Westmeath. It's a tiny little jail, one room, two rooms, um, probably part of the the, the medieval um, ecclesiastical centre, once a a great place now, very much run down. They just took all the trees off it very recently and repointed the jail, but that's that's about it for for four. Breathe will be familiar with it because it's a a famous uh, borough in the 1630s of... Or maybe it's a borough, maybe it's not. Um, it is. On, <laughs> under Wentworth. So the flurry of creations of new counties in Ireland between the Marian and Jacobean era created many new institutions. And whilst it is clear that each new county would require an erection of a county jail for those without bail to be confined in until the autumn or the spring assizes could be held, we must not also forget that many smaller, newer jurisdictions also had places of incarceration. So that, for example, one of the most fascinating sources that I've uh, come across on my hunt for uh, crime and punishment issues is the the court book for St. Sepulchre's. That's the Archbishop of Dublin's jurisdiction. And as you can see in that down towards the end, 
He, he's got a seneschal or some sort of figure like this who's actually dispensing justice on his behalf, but they do have a jurisdiction up to and including capital trials. So at the bottom there you can see uh, where it's right that uh, awarded by the court that thou go to the jail from whence thou dost come and there the irons to be struck off and from thence go to the place of execution and there to hang till thou die. They're not just the old ones. This is an account of uh, for example, as late as 1666, letters patent for the creation of a borough of Port Arlington in the Midlands accounted for not only the establishment of manorial courts and a court of pie powder, but also the erection of a town jail for which the pa patron, Sir Henry Bennett, uh, first Earl of Arlington, was to have power to appoint a keeper. Now, with a relatively small area of the walled city of Dublin, south of the river at least, there were several places of confinement. Dublin Castle was an obvious one that had been prominent since the arrival of the Normans and it had various types of accommodation such as that of the dungeon-like underground spaces but also more generous rooms which could be occupied by VI prisoners such as uh, John Atherton, the Bishop of Waterford and Lismore in the days immediately before his departure to the afterlife. And interestingly enough, his coffin resided with him in his cell during this time. And if you need reminding of who he is on the display inside... Uh, they've got a pamphlet relating to his time and the, the, the many indecent acts that brought him to the gallows. <laughs> um, directly to the west on Werberg Street, which is kind of roughly, if you remember, where Burdocks is when you turn down from... Uh, it's going to be fast food and pub references for all of these locations, by the way. You've got the Marshalsea of the Four Courts, uh, mostly holding debtors. And in the same block then was the Thalsal, roughly Jury's Inn, opposite Christchurch, which also contained an upper and lower jail and probably acted as the jail for the city court. Then further along the walls down to Newgate, which is roughly where you go from Christchurch out towards um, Thomas Street before you go down to the river, just where the city wall would be there. Newgate, which was on the first slide, holding mostly remand prisoners for both the county and the city of Dublin. And further northwest again along the city walls was the Black Dog. Uh, the latter two institutions became particularly notorious for their squalid conditions and inhumane keepers. Now, it's important to remember that not all jails had specific functions, and whilst Newgate is generally regarded perhaps as a remand jail uh, for those awaiting trial and the Black Dog primarily as a debtor's prison, there's no fast and hard rule as to exactly who goes where, as we might have in the prison system today. Um, the 17th century brought a new aspect to the carceral state. This was the development of the House of Correction. Legislated for in the Irish Parliament of 1634 to 1635, the Act for Erecting a House of Correction and for the Punishment of Rogues, Vagabonds, Dirty Beggars and other lewd and idle persons sought to create houses of correction in every kingdom in the, in the country, or sorry, every county in the kingdom. <clears throat> Although they were supposed to be built within 18 months of the passing of the legislation, we know that even the more established counties were struggling to have theirs up and running even by the early 1640s, but most counties probably had their house of correction for the period, uh, by the restoration period. So even if you look again at Breed's Clonmel book, you'll see that they're still raising funds in 1639, 1640, 41, and, and that part of the country is, is quite a, a well-to-do area in a long-established county, and if they're struggling to get theirs up and running, probably the less counties, you know, in Connacht or Ulster will probably be struggling a little bit more. Uh, it allowed for the incarceration of what were considered vagabonds and idle poor, putting those people to work and thus solving the problem of the idle poor. Um, sounds like I'm running for head of the Tory party. Um, and it was also felt that it would address the issues of particularly urban crime and disease control. And these are really important institutions. And I think not a lot of attention has been paid to them. And there's 
back in the 70s when people looked at these places on the continent in England, there's a lot of Marxist interpretation of captive labour and convict labour and all that sort of thing. I, th I, I think there's much to be said about them. Um, however, it is noteworthy that the fragments uh, that remained for both quarter sessions and the Assize hearings of the later 17th century uh, suggest that the House of Correction were used by judges for incarceration where, where other alternatives might have been a fine, corporal or perhaps even capital punishment. Now, there is a facility within these houses for, cap for corporal punishment. There's a whipping post in most of them. Um, but it's interesting that we see, um, as such then, even as, uh, as early as the 17th century, the state was using the prison in the modern sense, whereby the loss of liberty for a defined period of time was the punishment, rather than simply using a jail to hold the prisoner until jail delivery or subsequent punishment. So, for example, you'll see here in the, in the examples, if you can't see them, in Tipperary in April 1663, Catherine Brown was sentenced to three months for the theft of a sheet from uh, Thomas Smith. And similarly, William Morrison and Roger Hennessy were both sentenced to period in the House of Correction for plucking cherries in the orchard of the, His Grace the Duke of Ormond. Now, indeed, legislation in the 1660s specifically designated periods of confinement as the punishment for breaches of several statutes across that parliament. Descriptions of jail conditions are not plentiful and sometimes those that do exist may have been exaggerated for effect. We can be sure that on occasion they were not pleasant. An example found, for example, in, an example found, for example, in uh, the annual Jesuit report in 1614 from the head of the mission in Ireland, John Bushlock, to headquarters in Rome. If you haven't seen those Jesuit letters, by the, uh, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, Vera Moynes. It is a fantastic source. It's really, really interesting, the material that comes up in it. Um, I think it's worth quoting in detail. Now, it, co it copies detail from a petition to the Lord Deputy by Thomas and Anthony Kiernan and seven other Catholics bound in chains in jail and cavern for attending Mass. And thus, uh, they were not what we might describe the ordinary decent criminals. They're kind of uh, prisoners of conscience or political prisoners. The prison warder is so inhumanely enraged against us that he has confined us all together in the most loathsome prison cell, accommodation that should simply never be assigned to a Christian man. For indeed, besides the droves of swarming vermin which there most horribly infest the cave, the filth that has been left by prisoners over many previous years has grown up into such a heap that we fear we may die of the stench. The guard is so far removed from compassion that these misfortunes that instead he is becoming more resistant to our pleas and will not allow the heap of filth either to be brought outside at our expense or, which is more inhumane, to be covered over by straw or some other covering. Then, to the rest of the barbarity, he also added this increase in our punishment, that he barred us from any access, access to the gifts of nature itself, for no sunlight reached this cave, apart from which, that which came through a small hole in the door, but... When a lathe was placed over this, on the outside we were completely shut up within. Meanwhile, surrounded by darkness and almost suffocating, we could not obtain a lamp by any prayer or at any price. But his malevolence towards us is not even contained within these limits. For following his own impulse as to the extent of our hunger and thirst, he often withholds the food prepared for our necessity, and when we do receive food, it is according to his will, and is not let through the closed door intact, but is broken into small pieces that are passed through the hole." And he does these things with the intention that, in order to get lodging a little more desirable, we might each gather each week a payment of 30 pennies and a free gift of 70 florins, which we have paid out this last Parliament, but can by no means be paid back. Now, 
some of these letters are particularly if you're a kind of a, a Catholic almost on the way to a, a sort of a, a martyr sense of mind that you, you really need to sort of promote the idea that you've been severely punished for your faith. Um, if you can't read that closely enough, those are inventories of irons which are passed from one keeper of Newgate to the next where they're keeping an idea of, of how much metal is in the prison. And on a couple of them there, I'm not sure if you can see them out, for instance, on the right-hand side uh, of, your, of the screen, just two down in the list, it says item one bolt for children with two shackles. Those are children's irons to keep them attached to the walls and all the other kind of shackles, locks, shears uh, and manacles. It's of little wonder that some were enthusiastic to escape, although in some cases it may be that the experience of hardship was perhaps sometimes to be endured as part of one's religious experience and a strong expression of his faith. Considering um, this description of the conditions, perhaps it is little wonder then that in early 1592, Red Hugh O'Donnell was willing to escape down a silk rope through the imperfect toilet system of Dublin Castle, perhaps not unlike the fictional uh, representation in the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Reverend William Lackey had been involved in the Dublin plot, sometimes remember as Blood's Plot in the early 1660s, brought to a head in the summer of 1663, where several of the plotters were captured, tried, and some were executed. And that's a, there's a, another brilliant paper in those executions that we could do. Uh, they're very telling. Lackey had avoided, so he's a Presbyterian minister, Lackey had avoided the noose upon conviction after he exhibited signs of severe mental illness having seen the devil in the courtroom at his trial. He was returned to jail having been found guilty, but not yet sentenced. And it's interesting that the, the system, as harsh as we believe it to be in the early modern period, will not execute people who are exhibiting signs of insanity. And at the same time, if you look at some of the uh, post-mortem reports of suicide, they always try and get the jury to say he's insane, which means, by, you know, because the, uh, the, the possession of goods afterwards and, and things going to the Crown. So it's, it's really interesting. Uh, some months later, in mid-November 63, he escaped dressed as a woman, having had his files ironed off by two visitors, also supposed to have been his co-conspirators, again dressed as, a wi as women. They lodged him not far from the jail, and he was discovered the following day by a servant whom he'd asked to help him down off a wall. Uh, that was in Thomas Court, just off Thomas Street. After being returned to Newgate Jail, he was asked by Justice Aston if there was any reason why sentence should not be passed, his escape having convinced the judge of his sanity. He replied that he had only escaped because of the miseries and hardships of prison and thanked God that he was in better condition to answer for himself than when he was last in that place. And that's interesting enough, even that they're using a word like prison and not jail in this in this thing. Of course, it's not just Irish jails that were breakable. Even the most famous prison in the islands, the Tower of London, could be broken. Irish prisoners did on occasion escape. Sir Daniel O'Neill, a prominent royalist and later postmaster general for Ireland, broke the Tower of London after his arrest for involvement in the, in the army plot. Again, allegedly addressed, dressed as a woman. At risk of stating the obvious, the disguise seems to have been a popular one amongst Irish men. 1691, Mark, Bogga, Mark Baggett was taken as a spy, dressed as a woman, and apparently uh, Richard Talbot had escaped the slaughter at Drogheda in 1649, dressed in a distinctly feminine fashion. Um, whilst those breakers who were recaptured uh, or free to cause more mayhem in a celebrated fashion, we rarely see the aftermath of the jailbreak in terms of what becomes of those running the prisons uh, see. However, we do have some examples. Late in Queen Elizabeth's reign, Jane Hopp, that's a female by the way, Jane Hopp, widow of the previous jailkeeper of Her Majesty's Jail at Mullingar in the county of Westmead, to which jail there were committed amongst 
other two notorious and known traitors of the Sept of Nugents, uh, obviously an Anglo-Norman family, uh, martyr family known to go rogue on occasion, and at a general sessions last holden in Mullingar, the justices of his eyes, finding that the escaping of the said two Nugents would breed great danger to the quiet of, these board, of those borders, gave special charge unto the said Jane Hop, neither regarding the commandment of the said justices, nor the care she ought to have had for the safekeeping of all prisoners committed to her charge, she negligently and carelessly suffered them to escape, whereby great trouble and garboyle is likely to happen in that county by the escape of so dangerous traitors. After hearing evidences read and witnesses heard representing both sides, the Court of Castle Chamber judged that on the 6th of May 1597, the said Jane Hobb shall pay to Her Majesty for a fine some £200 and suffer imprisonment during the Lord Deputy's pleasure. By 1663, Philip Alden, a double agent who had infiltrated the Dublin plot, sometimes known as Blood's Plot, and kept government in Dublin well informed of its development long before it came to a head, had to be escaped from the jail. He'd been captured in the roundup in May in a, and in order to preserve his cover, and so his escape could allow him to further report on radical activity in both Ireland and in England in the years that followed. Now, the timing was important as uh, Vernon, his handler uh, within Dublin Castle, had just gotten the Lord Lieutenant's permission to flower the gallows the following week. He commented in his letter to London that so subtle was the knave that tis not imagined how he broke loose for the window bar that he broke was on the top of the castle in the highest turret. In the same letter, Vernon points out that the unfortunate constable of the castle was turned out of his employment for failing to prevent the escape. This was one that was arranged by the Dublin Castle authorities. And the Lord Lieutenant assured Bennett in London, the Secretary of State, that the escape was due to the negligence of the constable. And so strong was the ruse that the Earl of Arreve and a man who prided himself on the quality of his intelligence network was still referring to Alton as one of the two notorious villains of this country as late as November 1665. So whilst the early modern Irish prison was developing in a fashion that was considerably different from its medieval counterpart, both in terms of purpose-built jails and houses of correction in each county in Ireland, and in terms of how they were used, some problems associated with medieval Ireland remained. Why was the prison so easy to break in early modern Ireland? Now it's difficult to say with any certainty, but some tentative points could probably be made with some degree of confidence. In the first instance, many of the places made uh, many of the places of incarceration were not necessarily purpose-built. The older medieval ones are, are getting... The Newgate, if you read the, the, the calendar of the Dublin books, uh, it's constant complaints that Newgate needs investment, that the roof needs to be fixed, that the walls need to be done up, and it's certainly not, not up to scratch. It's certainly the case with medieval structures of buildings such as Dublin Castle and Newgate in Dublin. Regular complaint is made about the poor accommodation, both for the prisoners and the non-prisoners alike. And secondly, even with the purpose-built institutions, the staff arrangements were not those of the modern prison. Most of those working in the system were obviously not specifically trained for the role, nor were they centrally contracted to the prison service. Their payment was extracted from the prisoners directly, and jail security may not have been their primary consideration. And if you read the book on, the, on 18th century crime and punishment by Tim Watt, you'll get an awful lot of this detail in the 18th century about how the prison warders extract payment from the, from the prisoners. Visitors were, permi were permitted into the cells and sometimes were left alone with the prisoners. These and many other reasons conspired to allow for a more porous system than should have been permitted. It's also especially noteworthy, uh, considering just how violent early modern Ireland was, 
that almost all of the prison breaks that we know of involved guile and deception rather than riot or violence. Now, perhaps the situation in 17th century Ireland best shows the relative shortcomings of state power. 1603 had been a watershed year, not just for the obvious change from Tudor to Stuart, but also for the fact that it saw the end of independent Gaelic political power, certainly within a couple of years after that at least, um, and the final emergence of an all-Ireland uh, criminal justice system in the years that were to follow. The jail system was a somewhat hodgepodge mix of semi-private institutions, and unlike the more highly regulated system that's evident in the modern system of imprisonment. With infrastructural funding uh, frequently lacking and staff income sometimes unsure, it should not surprise us that the system had faults and that the prisoners did sometimes escape from their confines. The very obvious poor standards of accommodation for the prisoners, particularly those from lower classes, need not have been problematic for society or for the state, as prisoners of the criminal justice system were usually not there for the longer term as they are today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.